The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com. Good morning, everyone. Let's turn to page 874. Today, we're going to read Luke 14, 25 to 35. That will be Luke 14, 25 to 35, page 874. Let's get inspired by the word of God. Luke 14, 25 to 35. Now great crowds accompanied him, Jesus, and he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and is not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great weight off, he sends a dele delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that, has, that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use, either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears, let him hear. This is the word of God. Well, after hearing that, we all need to pray, right? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, Lord, uh, we want you to speak to us. I pray, Lord, as we will look at this challenging word, that um, you would help me to teach it faithfully, uh, help us to get it right, not lean uh, too far in any one direction. Help us to understand, Lord Jesus, what you really are after and what you want. I pray not only that you'd help me to teach this, I pray that uh, most of all you'd help all of us to, to listen to it. Lord, please don't let us make the mistake of thinking that for somehow or in some way it doesn't apply to us, um, but help us to truly hear what you want for our hearts and, and what it means in, in the actual reality of our lives. Uh, so help us now, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So did Jesus just tell you to hate your parents? And um, your kids, and uh, your lover, and hate your stuff too. It's a hard saying, isn't it? It's hard to understand, harder to accept. Uh, but as we get started, I just, I just want to remember, it may be one of the most important things you ever hear. It may be one of the most important things you ever tell someone else. And why is that? 
Well, these words are like smelling salts. Do you guys know what smelling salts are? I've only ever seen them on TV, right? What happens on TV? They're knocked out or drugged out or something. You pop whatever it is under their nose and they breathe it. And what happens? They wake up. That's what this text is for. Wake up to what it really means to be a Christian. Wake up to what it really means. So we've been working through Luke's gospel account of the life of Jesus. It's important to know who he's talking to. Do you see who he's talking to in verse 25? Great crowds accompanied him. Great crowds. And as we've been working through the gospel, we know about this crowd, what they're like. They're very moral, religious people. They go to synagogue. Um, They're curious about Jesus, so they actually come to hear him speak. And yet they remain under the label crowd. So they're curious about Jesus. They're, They're interested. They come to watch, but they're not disciples. And as we've seen, they presume that they're good with God because they're religious. And so Jesus wants to give smelling salts, right? Hey, wake up. You're not good with God because you're not yet my disciple. And disciple means a follower. You listen to what the teacher says and you follow it. It's easy for us to be sleepy religious, isn't it? It's so easy. It's so easy, especially in America where we're, we're pretty comfortable. I mean, don't you feel like a Marine Christian because you made it to church on Time Change Sunday, right? You're like, oh, ho. like, we're the ones, you know? And that's, a, that's our, uh, <laughs> wow, you know? And the, the persecuted church around the world is, you know, they're, mm-hmm. <laughs> Woo, <laughs> we're impressed. <laughs> It's easy to be sleepy religious. And wouldn't it be horrible to hit judgment day and realize we were asleep about the nature of our Christianity? What it means to follow Jesus. So let's wake up. And and I've been praying about this text and maybe it'll be the first time you wake up or maybe it'll just be another refresher on the heart of what it means to follow Jesus. So there's four things I want to look at with you today. Uh, The first is the only kind of follower Jesus wants. The only kind of follower Jesus wants. Number two, why this is so important. And then three and four are going to be a little more applicational. How do you get like this? And then number four, how do you know you're actually living it? So the only kind of follower Jesus wants, why it's so important. How do you get like this, a heart like this? And then how do you know you're actually doing it? So let's start. The only kind of follower Jesus wants. Look at verse 25. Great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me. We'll just pause there for a moment. Who's invited to come to Jesus? Anyone. Anyone. I just want to make that clear. If you come and you think, I don't know if I'm good enough for Jesus. I don't know if he could love me after what I've done. The mess I've made. I just want to remind you, your past doesn't matter when it comes to coming to Jesus. Anyone can come to Jesus. Don't you love that? Anybody can come. doesn't matter what a dumpster fire you've been, how many times you've made the same mistake. You can come to Jesus. Jesus is saying it doesn't matter what you've done. But then he's going to say all that matters is how you come 
It doesn't matter what you've done. All that matters is how you come. And religious people get this backwards. Religious people focus on what all the bad people have done and think, oh, you can't come. And Jesus wants to say to the religious people, you're using your religion to keep from coming to me all the way. So a worse problem, Jesus says, is not the past and what you've done. It's the halfway in which you want to come. It's the way you don't want to give up everything to me. That's the problem. It's not what you've done. It's how you come. They want to stay crowds. Curious crowds. He says, you're not my disciple. So then we get to the really hard part. If anyone must come to me, he has to hate. Let's just look at, let's peruse everything we're supposed to hate. Are you ready? Verse 26. Just your father, mother, wife, children, brothers, and sisters. Okay? Some of you are like, well, that's easy. Finally a command I obey, right? <laughs> let's make it harder for Americans. Verse 33, therefore, any of you does not renounce all what? All that he has. It's all your acquisitions, your house, your money, your career, your status, your position. Renounce it all. And hey, let's just, let's take it all the way. Verse 26, you have to hate even your own life. You have to hate even your own life. Okay, so... What on earth are you telling me to do, Matt, right? What are we supposed to do? What am I supposed to do? Am I supposed to abandon my wife and kids, burn all my stuff, and go starve myself in the forest because I hate myself? Isn't that what Jesus is telling you to do? Is that the way we're supposed to apply the Bible? Okay. That's why you go to seminary, everybody. Context, right? Um, is this what Jesus is telling you to do? Now, right away, if you've, read, if you've even read Jesus, you know that's not what he's telling you to do. He tells you to love your enemy. And later on, he gets all over the Pharisees for how they make excuses like, oh, I tithed my stuff. Now I don't have to take care of my aging parents. And he's all over them for that. No, no, no. The command he wrote, honor your father and your mother. Plus, you read the Bible at all. Go love your neighbor how many times, right? Is he telling you to have this active antagonism and despising towards all these things? Well, of course not. And his audience would have known this. In Semitic usage, the word hatred does not have to mean an emotional act of despising or reviling of something. It can often mean just this, to love one thing far less than you love something else. Or to disregard one thing or be indifferent to it because you're so enamored by something else. So hatred then becomes more like indifference. Indifference in comparison to. So let me give you a couple examples. Here's a biblical one. In Genesis, it says Jacob loved Rachel, and in the Hebrew, he hated Leah. You read the story, and you see God showing us how terrible polygamy is. <laughs> um, but you also would notice that Jacob doesn't actively hate with antagonism. Leah, he's actually kind to her. They seem to get along in various ways. They have lots of children together. Okay. But in comparison to how he thought about Rachel, she felt hated. Again, it wasn't an act of destruction. It was indifference of one thing in comparison to another. 
Rachel was just so much more important to Jacob. Let me give you a more modern example. How about our wedding ceremonies? Any, any wedding I do will have this in it. I got, a, got it on the slide for you. You can remember. I ask uh, the, the, the man and the wife, but in this case, uh, I have on here the example of the wife. Will you have this man to be your husband, to live together in the covenant of marriage? Will you love him, comfort him, honor and keep him in sickness and in health? And what's the next phrase? Forsaking all others. So when my wife promised to do this, did this mean that from now on she has nothing but utter contempt and antagonism for every male in her life? No. Are you kidding me? No, of course not. It's ridiculous. What it meant was she is from now on indifferent to all other men in comparison to me when it, when it comes to who is her husband. Praise God. Right? So in that way, she's indifferent to everybody else because she has a greater love. That's what, we, that's what we say, hey, are you sure you're into this? That's why I do this in the wedding ceremony. Are you sure you want this? And, and they go, yeah, I want it. That's what I want to do. Okay. Let me give you another example, way more pagan, secular. If you're going to play on this sports team, you will have to hate all your other weekend plans. You ever been on a team or a hobby like that? You get to hate all your other weekend plans. Does it mean that you have active, antagonistic, uh, despising for the church you used to go to? No, you still like them. But you're just indifferent to them now in comparison to the great love of the sports team. So what is Jesus saying? He's saying that the only kind of disciple he wants is the kind where all your other most precious loves Look like indifference in comparison to your love for him. That's what he wants. All other loves look like indifference in comparison to your love to him. So that's your family relationships, your friends, your dearest acquisitions, and indeed your very self. So even though now we've ironed it out and it's not active hatred, okay, we know that's not it. It still hits hard, doesn't it? Anybody getting out from under this one? It hits hard. It hits, it hits us hard in different ways. I was thinking of how it hits different cultures. You know, if you, for modern Western culture, if I said, hey, you got to hate your parents, you know, everybody in college is like, yeah, we knew they were stupid, you know, <laughs> hate them. You say that to Eastern culture, pleasing my parents is everything in that culture. And Jesus says to Christians in Eastern culture, not anymore not if you want to be my disciple now you live to please me or let's do modern western culture well, i could hate my parents okay but you got to hate yourself whoa <laughs> i'm supposed to esteem validate actualize seek prioritize myself how i feel is everything and what does Jesus say? Not anymore. Not if you want to be my disciple. Jesus is saying that true discipleship is an all-encompassing devotion to him. It's an all-encompassing devotion to him. And it's the only kind of discipleship that he wants. It's all he wants. 
So I want to think about the word only with you. Devotion to Jesus is the only way to follow him. Isn't that what he's saying? If you don't hate all these things in comparison to your love for me, you can't be my disciple. You can't. Did you know everybody's a disciple of something? Everybody in here is a disciple. You are seeking your identity, your security, your pleasure. You're following something, giving your energy to it, your love to it. And there's really just two categories as far as this conversation is concerned. What are the two categories? It's Jesus and everything else. And Jesus is saying, if you want to come to me, come to me only. And this is the only kind of follower I want. You know, I think a lot of Christians have the idea that there's like a different Christian levels. There's a fire insurance level over here, right? You don't have to go to hell. How do you get the fire insurance? It's easy, right? I prayed a prayer once where I was raised in a Christian family. I went to Christian school. I've been to church before. I got fire insurance. I'm good, right? I'm religious. Then there's the next level. I participate in church. I'm there a lot. I use religious language. And then we think, oh, the varsity Christian level. Those are the people who are devoted to Jesus with everything. And Jesus is saying, the only people with the fire insurance are the committed disciples. There is no middle ground on third way, great on a curve discipleship. If you don't love me so much, Jesus says, that all your other loves look like indifference in comparison, you can't be my disciple. It's the only kind of disciple he wants. He wants to be your only Lord. Is Jesus an add-on to your life? Is he an add-on to your life? Hey guys, am I talking about perfection here where you always perfectly love Jesus in every single moment? Good grief. No, Jesus isn't either, by the way. It's a consistency. It's a lifestyle. It's an aim. It's a goal. But doesn't he want to be Lord? If you're picking and choosing what parts of your life Jesus is Lord over, who's picking and choosing? You are. And then who's Lord? You are. The only way he's Lord is if he's Lord. If you don't have him as your only Lord, you can't be his disciple. It's the only kind of disciple Jesus wants when he's the only Lord, and devotion to him is the only option. Look at verse 27. Devotion to him is the only option. Verse 27, whoever does not bear his own, what? Cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. We're used to crosses, and we should be. We like the cross. It's everything to us. But when you're used to something, you forget what it was. Uh, wouldn't it be weird if you're walking around wearing a noose on your necklace? Or like a, a whip with uh, barbs on the end with which you could whip others? People would think it's kind of uh, violent, morbid. Oh, you've gone way further than that if you've ever worn a cross. 
Remember what crosses do? A shameful uh, death. And people in this context would be familiar with the idea of somebody having to drag their cross through the city. You drag their cross through the city. Um, and it was a shameful death. But, but here's the thing with crosses. When you see them drag their cross, do you often see them coming back? Or is it rather a one-way street? Is there anything where you're like, hey, I have a receipt here. I'd like to give the cross back. <laughs> Can I return this? It's a one-way street. And what did we sing this morning? I've decided to follow Jesus. And what do we say after that? No turning back. What do we say? The cross before me. The world behind me. What's next? There's no turning back. It's the only option. It's the only road for me. Christ is enough. Everything I need is in you. That's what we sing. So Jesus is talking about the only kind of follower he wants. And what is the heart of his disciple? We love him so much that every other love looks like indifference in comparison to our love for him. And that is Christianity. There's not another way. There's not a casual sneak in the back. There's not a, hey, where's the easy version where I just get in on the low level? That's not there. That, that isn't there. There's just one where Jesus is everything. Why is it so important? Well, look what he says next, 27 to 32. I think it's pretty much the same illustration given twice. Uh, he says, which of you desiring to build a tower, you wouldn't first sit down and count the cost? Like, can, can you afford this thing? Which of you, if you're going to have to fight a war, wouldn't you count the cost and see if you could win this thing? Count the cost. Consider what's going to cost. Otherwise, if you don't count the cost, what happens? Well, you start to build this tower, and it's an honor-shame culture. It's like, hey, look, there's Matt's tower, and got half. Hey, he's got two walls and a window. This would probably happen to me if I was building towers. He's got two walls and a window. Oh, dang. I can't finish it. And now everybody walking down the streets like, hey, check out Matt's two walls and a window. <laughs> I couldn't finish. I didn't count the cost. I didn't budget it out. I didn't know what it was going to take. But the guy who's got to fight the war, there's all these people that his choice is going to affect. He's got all these armies to worry about. Can you win this thing? If not, you're going to get wrecked, so maybe you should find a peace treaty somehow. This is going to affect lives. Count the cost. And I love Jesus here. Because he doesn't, uh, he gives you everything up front, doesn't he? Who's he talking to? Crowds. You know, some religions, they keep all the hard stuff in the small print, you know? Or even some kinds of Christianity, it's like, hey, if you come to Jesus, he is going to fix it all. Right? Your marriage is going to be awesome. Your kids are going to be awesome. You're going to make tons of money. You'll have peace every single day. Right? There's even books. Every day, a Friday. Okay? Small print for the super mature people. You know, it's like the end of a radio commercial when they start talking really fast. Um, or, the, or the drug commercial where it's like side effects. Side effects to accepting Jesus may include crosses. May include dying to everything you ever loved. Okay? Uh, 
Jesus doesn't do that with us. He's so kind and so honest, and he says to the crowd right here up front, hey, count the cost. You know, it's so beautiful. He's not looking for this one moment when you heard the special music and a really juicy story. Does anybody want to accept the Lord? You may hit a car wreck on the way home. Come now, come now. Jesus doesn't even do that. He says, slow down, hold your horses. Figure out if you can finish this thing. Listen one more time to what I'm asking you for. Right? Jesus says, I don't care what you've done. It doesn't matter. I'll take you. I don't care what you have. It doesn't matter. All I want is all of it. So if you want to give me all of it, come on in. I'll take you. If you don't want to give me all of it, you can't be my disciple. And the reason for it is, if you don't love him more than everything else, you won't be able to finish. You won't be able to finish. You won't make it. So to finish is something like following Jesus consistently until death, no matter the cost. Right? And in context, we want to make it to the feast. We want to finish. Um, we want to make it. And Jesus is up front and says, how are you going to make it if you don't love me most? I'm reminded, um, I went to visit, a friend of mine helps run a training center for missionaries. And I went to visit one day. It's in Tijuana. And I heard the story from this young lady who's like in her 20s. We were all, nobody could breathe. She was telling us about how she grew up in this family and she loved her parents so much. She really loved them. They're not Christians at all. She became a Christian and she in her life had this deep call to be a missionary to unreached people groups in a place that is very difficult. And so at first her parents didn't really like that she was a Christian, but it was kind of like, when she dropped missionary on them, having my babies over there, they said, we're done with you if you do this. And they didn't even go to her wedding. They wouldn't go to her wedding. And you know what she said? It kills me. I love them. I pray for them. But Jesus is worth it. She's counted the cost, right? She's counted it. Now, for each one of us, the cost is different. Right? There's a different cost on where you live geographically. There's a different cost on what your family is like, what your life story is like. There's all, the, the cost is different. Some people pay a massive cost. right? Some people actually take up their cross, a real cross. Others of us, the cost is different, but there's always a cost. And more than what the cost is, is a willingness to pay the cost. It's a willingness to pay the cost. To where you say, I don't know what the cost is going to be, right? I don't, I don't know how it's going to go with all my relationships and all my stuff and all my life. I don't know. But the willingness is, if there is a cost, Jesus, I believe you're worth the cost, whatever the cost might be. And he says, if you don't love me in this way, you won't make it. You won't finish. And isn't it true, folks? Aren't the roads leading away from our churches strewn with half-built half houses? Half-built houses. People who quit on Jesus to support their kids' lifestyle. People who quit on Jesus to chase their career. Or people who quit on Jesus to have some lifestyle behavior that Jesus forbids. We've seen it a million times. And some of us have done it. 
Thankfully, it's not what's in your past that counts. It's how you come right now that matters. Not only, Jesus says, you won't be able to finish if you don't love me like this. You won't be able to be used the way I want to use you if you don't love me like this. Look at verses 34 to 35. Why does Jesus start talking about salt? Salt is good if it's lost its taste. How can its saltiness be restored? It's of no use. Did you see that? It's of no use, either for the soil or for the manure pile. It's thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. When Jesus drops that on you, you've got this little parable. What does he mean? Well, we know in context, he's talking to crowds about what it means to follow him. Okay? And then, so who or what is the salt? We know from Matthew 5.13, what did Jesus say to his disciples? You are the salt of the earth. What did salt mean to the ancient world? Well, it had, I think, two major values. One was it was a preservative. Okay, in a world with no refrigeration, how do you make the meat last longer than 40 minutes in the sun, right? You salt it, and so it preserves it, keeps it edible, keeps it good. And, of course, there's seasoning. Paul will talk like this, let your speech be seasoned. Okay, salt seasons. So salt is this benefit. Disciples are supposed to be a benefit to the world, right? We're supposed to be used by God to, to bring God's blessing in life and his love and his wisdom in the world. Salt is a benefit. The Old Testament will talk about covenants of salt. Why would you do that? Well, what's a covenant? It's a promise we make to one another. Salt a preservative. What does that mean? The covenant lasts. It keeps. We're going to keep it. So then Jesus writes about salt that's not salty anymore. Chemistry, you're like, well, what? How does that work? Sodium chloride is not sodium chloride. Well, again, in the ancient world, there were a varieties of ways where piles of stuff that looked like salt would either have the sodium chloride washed out or chemically compromised somehow. And so when Jesus says you can't even put it on the manure pile, it sounds like a mean insult, right? You're worse than poo or something. But what, what do you do with a manure pile in the ancient world when you have a garden? Okay, you, you fertilize the plants. But you can't put this kind of salt in the garden because what's that going to do? It's going to ruin the plants. Okay, it's ruinous. It doesn't work. So the only value it'll have is like for a sidewalk. That's the ancient world context. Now, what does it have to do with following Jesus? Church, what is it that makes you salty if you are salty to the world? What is it that enables you to bring preserving life and goodness to the world around you? What is it that enables you to be a seasoning where people want to go, whoa, what was that? That person's different. What is it? It's love for Jesus. It's the kind of love for Jesus that makes all other loves look like indifference. When I went to a Little League game the other day, how many of those families love their kids? They all love their kids. They all love their kids. It's a great thing to love your kids. Love your kids. But what makes you salty in how you raise your kids? Do you raise them for Jesus? 
You can, you can plug that into any illustration. What is it that makes us have a taste? What is it that makes us a preserving agent? It's if we're the kind of people who love him so much that all of their loves look like indifference. And so Jesus is saying, if you don't have that kind of love for me, you can't be my disciple, you won't make it, and I won't be able to use you the way I want to use you because you won't stand out. You won't have a flavor. You won't be different. You'll be like everybody else. And if that sounds too hard, does it sound too hard? If that sounds too hard, come on, what is the world's biggest complaint about the church? We're hypocrites. We're hypocrites. That's the biggest complaint. You claim what? You claim to love Jesus, but in your life you actually love what? Not Jesus. So the world at large is telling us what Jesus is telling us. You're different when you love him the most. And, and back to the illustration of don't fight a war unless you count the cost, right? It's going to wreck people. What wrecks us more than people who claim to love Jesus and don't? They can't finish. And they aren't used. What is a practiced hypocrisy other than a clinging to other loves? Again, I'm not saying, hey, I'll be the first in line. I have hypocrisy in my life. I'll be the first in line. I don't always love Jesus the way I should. I'm the first in line. I don't think Jesus here is talking about a perfectionism where you always get it right every time. That doesn't fit with the Bible or other teachings, right? Are you with me on that? He's talking about a trajectory of your life and a commitment of your mind and your heart that says, this is where I want to go. This is who I want to be. And people who practice in and pull off that hypocrisy, they're not there. They, they're, they're practicing like the crowd, a religious proximity. They come to hear him talk, huh, whatever, but they don't love him most. And so we have to make it clear. Jesus is making it so clear. How many Christians have never heard this text? How many people have never heard this idea? You're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And if you are, your life becomes a blank check written out to Jesus Christ. And you don't know the exact number of what that cost will look like, but you're saying, I'll pay it. And that's the only kind of disciple Jesus wants. That's the only kind of actual disciple there is. I think it's fair. I think it's fair. Say you were engaged and your, uh, your fiance came up and said, hey, I'm so into you. Uh, I'm, Matt, I'm really glad we're going to get married. Can I bring Clarence along as the second husband? No. One of us will die. Okay? Hey, baby, I'm so into you. I want to be your husband. Is it okay if, you know, can I bring Samantha along as another wife? Ladies, how do you feel? No. Okay? Jesus doesn't want to be one of your boyfriends. He wants to be the husband. What is the biblical illustration for his relationship between himself and the church? He's the husband. So we don't, we don't hold hands on the side. We come to him. We come to him. Okay, so what does he want? The only kind of follower he wants is where you love him to such an extent, all other loves look like indifference. Why does he say it? If you don't love him like that, he won't finish. 
And number two, you won't be used like he wants to use you. He wants you to be salt. Okay, how do you get this? How do you get a heart like this that's willing to pay the cost? Well, how many of you, as you hear Jesus' words, you're saying, I'm still in Jesus, I want you? Anybody out there? How many of you are like, I still want him? Okay. Most of us are like, I, st- I still want him. Why do you still want him? Some of you have paid costs, and you're paying them now. Why do you still want him? The answer, I think, is because you see the beauty of who he is and what he's done for you. You can see it. The eyes of your heart see the beauty of who he is and what he's done for you. There's an implicit promise in this text. As Jesus says, love me more than your wife, love me more than your husband, love me more than your parents, love me more than your brother or sister, love me more than your kids, love me more than your stuff, love me more than yourself. There's an implicit promise that's underneath all of that. What is he saying about himself? I am better than your husband. I'm better than your wife. I'm better than your kids. I'm better than your stuff. I'm better than yourself. I'm the treasure. I can satisfy you. Come on, don't you know that those things, when we live for them, they can't actually satisfy us? What happens if you live for your kids? They leave you. (laughs) They disappoint you. And you see your failures in them. And and in the end, (laughs) if you live for your kids, the end is a sad end. I love my kids. What happens if my wife lives for me? I'm going to tell you, I cannot bear that burden. (laughs) I cannot satisfy her heart. You know, that line from Jerry Maguire dies quickly when it comes to me. You complete me. Oh, baby. No, I don't. (laughs) No, I can't. Are you kidding? How can I be that enough for her? I can't. My only hope is that she loves Jesus more. And that motivates her love for me. He's better. He's better than your stuff. He's better than that relationship. He's better. He's the treasure. And doesn't he say that himself? Matthew 13, 44. Matthew 13, 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a what? A treasure hidden in a field which a man man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has to buy the field. What did the guy sell? All that he had. But was he like moping around for it? Say you were working in a yard somewhere and you dug up a box with cabillions of dollars. You bury that mess down again. You go look up on Zillow.com How much is this mess? I think I can scratch it up. And you sell it all. You sell every single thing you've got, and you don't even care. Why? Because if you get enough to buy that property, what's yours? The treasure. The treasure's over here. I don't need that anymore because I found the treasure. That's what it's like to follow Jesus. I found the treasure. And when you see him as your treasure, you find amazingly 
that you are his treasure. How can he say, take up your cross and follow me with a straight face? How can he say it? What's he going to do? What's he going to do? What's he on the road to do? He's going to die on a cross for you. He's going to take on himself the wrath of God that I deserve and that you deserve for all the times we loved all these things so much more than him. All these times we said, Jesus, you're less important than this, that, and the other thing. All those times, and Jesus is going to pay for it. He's going to pay for it. So that if you, no matter, again, what you've done, if you come to him, you trust him, he says to you, forgiven, loved, welcomed, calls you daughter, son. As the Father has loved me, Jesus will say, so I have loved you, his love for you. It's the people who see the treasure that Jesus is and the beauty of his love for us, specifically on the cross, who then will say, I don't even know everything I'm saying here, but whatever the cost is, I'll pay it because I want Jesus. Can you see it? Can you see him and what he's done? Now, there's a lady I was remembering in Luke who saw. It's one of my favorite stories. We went over it several months ago, so I don't expect you to remember. Um, but I'm going to help you remember. Luke 9:37. Luke 9:37. Luke tells us, "Behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner." Okay, when you get that title dropped on you in the old world, it's not just like, "Well, everybody sins." It's like, "Oh, you did that." She's a sinner. When she learned that Jesus was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster flask of ointment. So if some ladies had this, this is the most expensive thing she owns. And she would wear it, it would give off a little bit of a scent. And so for her job, most likely, a good scent helps. But it's the most valuable thing she owns. And the thing is, once you open that mess, uh, we don't have Ziplocs, Tupperwares, screw lid bottles, okay? Once you open it, it's gone. And so she, this sinful world, again, I told you, it doesn't matter what's in your past. The sinful woman, she comes to Jesus. Look what she does. Standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. She broke out her greatest treasure on Jesus' feet. Why? She saw who he is and what he offered her. Look what he says to her in verse 47. Now he's talking to the Pharisee at this point. I tell you, her sins, which are what? Are many, are also what? Forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. What does she see? What has moved her? That somebody so valuable, so wonderful as Jesus could forgive her of all her sins. And her response is love. And literally, she takes the most precious thing that she has and dumps it at him. She saw. 
And that's to be a parable of all, all Jesus' disciples. We see how beautiful he is and his love for us, forgiving us. We see, and then we say, it's yours. It's all yours. Love him by seeing the beauty of who he is and what he's done. So maybe some of us need to pray that we'll really see it, that will really move us, that we'll really remember, that we'll really feel, oh, what you've done to forgive me, Lord Jesus. The only kind of disciple Jesus wants is the one that loves him to such an extent that all other loves look like indifference. It's so important because it's the only way we finish, and it's the only way he can use us like he wants to in this text. How do you get it? How do you get a heart that moves towards loving him like that? You see who he is as a treasure and his love and what he's done for us. Here's my last point. How do you know you're doing it? How do you know you're doing it? It's a hard one, right? So you're like, okay, Lord, I want to... You read the text, you're like, okay, I'm not supposed to leave my wife and kids. And they're like, whoo! <laughs> um, no, I'm not supposed to leave my wife and kids. How do I know I love Jesus more than my wife and my kids? How do I know? How do you know you love him more than your money or more than your job? How do you know? What do you do? You know you're loving Jesus first when you become less a master and more a steward. Less a master and more a steward. What does a master say about something? Mine. My life. My marriage. My money. My whatever. What does a steward say about something? Yours. I'm yours. My money's yours. My marriage is yours. My kids are yours. You know you're loving Jesus most when you become less a master and more a steward. A steward is somebody who takes somebody else's stuff and uses it according to that master's purposes, right? How do you know how Jesus wants you to live in all your most precious relationships, money, acquisitions, and your very self? How do you know? I'm not, I'm not going over spiritual on you. Sunday school answer is going to work. The B-I-B-L-E. Okay, right? You know that one? That's the book for me. Okay. How do you know? Jesus says this. This is his love language. He, I want you to love me more than anything. And then John 14, 15. John 14, 15. If you love me, what? Keep my commandments. That's how I know. If you love me, keep my commandments. So let me give you a couple examples on how this can work. Jesus has mentioned marriage. He's mentioned kids. He's mentioned stuff. So real quick, Ephesians 5, 25. Here's God's command. Husbands, what? Love your wives. How? As Christ loved the church and what? Gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her. So I'm a married man. Am I supposed to love my wife? Yes. In what way? I lay my life down for her, according to this text. With the goal, what did Jesus want for his wife? He wanted to sanctify her. What does that mean? That she follow him more and look like him more. And so my love for her then 
is to be a part of her loving him and to lay down my selfish desires so that I can be like him. Because now I'm not saying, hey, this marriage is mine. The wife is for me. Now I'm saying about my marriage, what? It's yours. This is for you. This is for you. I'm a steward of yours. Try this one on, another example. 1 Corinthians seven thirteen. Imagine this in the early church. It plays out in our lives as well. 1 Corinthians seven thirteen. If any woman has a husband who's an unbeliever, that's going to be difficult, right? And he consents to live with her, she should what? Not divorce him. Why? In the end, verse 16, how do you know, wife, whether you will what? Save your husband. So a major motivation for this woman staying in this marriage is what? The possibility of that man's salvation. Where did, uh, where did you complete me go? Where did I'm doing this for my rainbows and popsicles go? Do you see he's calling this Christian disciple to say, it's not your marriage. It's his marriage. You're less a master and you're more a steward. That's what it looks like to love Jesus first. Another one, children, okay? Ephesians 6, 4. Oh, man. All you dads are going to love me for this one. Ephesians 6, 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. I'll tell you how I do this. I do this when I feel annoyed by my kids, and uh, I start taking it personally as if the world revolves around me. Um, and then you get snappy. Any dads, you ever been snappy? Okay, come on, right? And then you know, your kids are like, what's up? Provoke them to anger. Because you thought in that moment your kids were about you. I've done it too. No, I don't do that. Bring them up in the what? Discipline and instruction of who? The Lord. My kids are not my kids. Who are they for? They're for Jesus. My fatherhood is not about me. It's for him. Let's talk about work, your career, your job. Hey, be the best you can be. Have some ambition. Uh, move up in the world. Make a dent. Make, an, make a difference. Colossians 3.23. Whatever you do, work what? Work hardly. Work hard. Why? As for the Lord, not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are what? Serving the Lord Christ. Your job is not your job. It belongs to Jesus. It's for him. You're serving him. Now you could ask about all the wisdom implications on what job you do and why and how much time it takes and where you go and what's the impact of it. Those are all important questions for the wisdom of your choices. But in the end, the main principle is your jobs, your, your acquisitions, your money, it's not about you anymore. It doesn't belong to you anymore because you belong to Jesus. And therefore, so does your marriage, your children, 
your job, even yourself. Paul saw this, right? Paul saw this. What did he say in, well, in Philippians? He said, man, you should have seen everything I had pre-Jesus. Top of the line, uh, Pharisee, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You remember what he calls it all after that? Dung. It's nothing. I've got a new treasure now. I like how he puts it in Galatians 2.20. How does he see his own life? I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who what? What's that word? Loved. Why is it past tense? Couldn't he say loves, present tense? He could have. Couldn't he say, will love me forever? Couldn't he say that? Yeah, he could. Why do you say loved, past tense, one time? Because the way you know you're loved is the cross. He loved me on the cross, and he gave himself for me. And therefore, Paul says, even my own life, it's not about what I want. It's about him. I'm less a master, and I'm more a steward. It's all for him. Do you see how it works? That's how it works. Here's the amazing, surprising irony. Jesus tells you in the beginning to hate all these things in comparison to him. But then you see here at the end, you realize that if I actually move in that direction, I will love these things better than I had ever loved them before. Because if I love my parents for my own sake or just to please them, it's inherently selfish and idolatrous and codependent. If I am set free from being owned by that and now I'm owned by Christ, guess where Christ is going to send me? To love my parents in ways that are more sacrificial and more um, pleasing to him than ever before. Or you saw those verses about marriage. We live in a culture that wants to say marriage is all about you and how you feel. How are we really loving the other person in that way? We're loving ourselves. And when Jesus says your marriage is mine, all of a sudden you have these resources to sacrifice your sense of self in order to give yourself for the other person and now you're actually loving. When we love him first... We love others better. When we love him first, we love others better. So what should we do as a result of this passage? Wake up and count the cost. What kind of disciples does Jesus want? Those who are devoted to him as Lord, who love him to such an extent that all other loves look like indifference. How do you get that? See him for who he is and what he's done. The treasure who has gone to the cross for you. Trust in him. Remember, uh, your past doesn't matter. For when it comes to Jesus, he can forgive you. He can accept you. All that matters is how you come. Come with everything. And then you'll find yourself, as you love him first, loving everything better than you ever did. For his sake. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it's a challenging word. It is your word. And we pray that your Holy Spirit would move in us and through us so that we could actually move uh, towards you in this way. 
Lord, we want to lift up to you right now our idolatries and the things we love too much, the things we have put in your place. And we pray, Lord Jesus, that you would give us the strength and the desire and the courage, God, to love you more than anything and to love everything else according to your word. Uh, give us the joy of knowing that we have you as our treasure. Um, and give us encouragement in knowing that loving you in this way is the deepest and greatest love we could ever give to others. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. And we invite you to visit us Sunday mornings here at Fountain of Life Fellowship. For more information, visit www.fo.com. FOLFCRC.com.